This is exactly right. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. At Parent Footprint, our goal and mission is to create a loving world with more compassionate people, one parent and one child at a time. We firmly believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids are for us parents to seek the same things, to be happy, to seek happiness, to be engaged in our life, to be aware of ourselves, of others, and our parenting. And by being aware, we can create our own vision of successful parenting by being the people we want our kids to become. Today's show is with Dr. Tai Tashiro. Dr. Tai wrote this amazing book, which we're going to talk about today, calling Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. And today's show is Why Being Socially Awkward is Awesome. A little bit about Ty. Dr. Ty is the author of Science of Happily Ever After. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time.com, TheAtlantic.com, NPR, and Sirius XM Stars Radio. He received his PhD in psychology from the University of Minnesota and has been an award-winning professor at the University of Maryland and University of Colorado and has addressed TED at New York City, Harvard Business School, MIT's Media Lab, and the American Psychological Association. And he currently lives in New York City. Dr. Tai, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dr. Dan. Okay, Tai, so let's start with how did this book come to be? Awkward. Well, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, about three or four years ago, it just so happened that I had a lot of friends uh, in their 20s who had moved to new cities or were in new jobs. And I had observed that uh, these friends who were socially awkward were having such a tough time adjusting to these new environments. And I found that so interesting because these were people that I knew well, and mm-hmm. I knew that they had a great character. Uh, they were generous, kind people. They were smart. They were interesting. And they just struggled with these initial moments of social interactions. And I thought, gosh, if they could just skip the first five minutes of social interactions, they'd probably be a lot better off uh, because then people could discover who they really are. So they need they needed to get Beyond the first five minutes, is that where everything crashes? That, that, that's where the potential train wreck happens? It's pretty heavily concentrated. <laughs> there, that was my observation. And um, so then I had the idea to, to maybe write a book about it. And as I got into the social science research, you know, I saw that that was oftentimes the case, that these studies were showing that it was these initial moments of social interaction where awkward people really struggle. And once an interaction gets going and once they gain comfort with people, uh, that's when they really start to be okay. And I think most people are like that, whether they're awkward or not. But that difference between those initial moments of interaction and then the longer-term interactions are more sharply pronounced for people who are socially awkward. 
So what what are the characteristics of being awkward? You know, what does that what does that look like? How do we define that? Yeah, sure. Well, I could give you a psychological definition of that, but I always like to start with the root of the word awkward, which is an old Norse word, afagur. And afagur means facing a different direction. And I really like that because it explains why awkward people might miss social cues or social expectations that everybody else sees. But it also says that they're looking at unique things or through a unique lens, and that could provide unique value um, to other people or to a group. And that suggests that there's an upside to being awkward. And it also maps on well to the social science data um, about how awkward people think about the world and function. And now if we provide a more psychological definition, it's really three things. It's social skill deficits, communication problems, and what I call obsessive interests, this tendency to get really excited and narrowly focused on a specific area of interest. So if you have those characteristics and you're not necessarily looking towards people to look at their uh, facial expressions or responses to you, there can be some awkward and unsuccessful interactions. That's exactly right. So there actually are eye tracking studies that are really fascinating. They can, uh, in the laboratory, assess within millimeters where your pupils are focused (laughs) on a computer screen or in a room. Hmm. And what they find is that, you know, what most people do when they're in a social interaction is they reflexively look to the eye region of people's faces. And that's an adaptive sort of thing to do in a social interaction because the eye region is so rich in emotional cues. You know, this idea that you can see it in their eyes, that you can decipher Mm -hmm. what someone is thinking is actually true. There's psychological research to show that that's the case. Now, awkward people, by comparison, tend to reflexively look at the chin or the edge of the ears when they talk to somebody. And those are far less information-rich areas, <laughs> of course. So from the, <laughs> right. from the very start, awkward people are behind in the interaction and behind in gathering important information that they need to understand what the other person's mindset might be. Hmm. And, you know, I was, I was just reflecting as you're talking on a, uh, a recent podcast where I, I kept saying about this topic we were talking about that, oh, this is hard for people to make these changes. And our guest said, you know, it's actually not hard. People are never taught. So I'm thinking about, you know, this piece of information that, of course, you write about in your book and what uh, we're talking about today is it seems critical that we would teach people of all ages something as simple as where are you looking and where to look and what information that you might be able to get that could be helpful. Yeah, you you would think that that's the case, right? You would think at the very least we'd have maybe one class along the way in kindergarten or first grade and and teach everybody how to do this. But, you know, the prevalence uh, studies show that about maybe 15 to 20% of people are awkward. So, uh, you know, they're in this minority group. And what happens with most people uh, who aren't awkward, people I would call socially fluent, is they naturally pick up on these things. So they naturally know to look to people's eyes or they naturally know to stand about 18 inches away from somebody when they're talking to them. And no one has Mm -hmm. to tell them that. They pick it up just like a kid would pick up um, grammatical rules or vocabulary. But awkward Mm -hmm. people, you know, for them, social interaction is a bit like speaking in your second language. Right. 
So you talk about heritability and percentage rates. Um, I imagine like many other things, uh, males and females might have some different, uh, different percentage points on this. They do. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the first question I guess is, is awkwardness heritable at all? And the answer to that is yes, it shows pretty substantial heritabilities. And for boys, it's about 52% heritable. Uh, for girls, it's about 39% heritable. So you do see that hmm. sex difference there. Uh, you also see a difference in the amount of familial influence. So when we think about the environmental factors that influence someone's level of social awkwardness, uh, mm-hmm. girls are more influenced by the family environment than boys are. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. So this is that na- the nature nurture thing. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, I think some of that has to do with just cultural expectations. Some of these rules we've had about gender roles, um, which I'm agnostic about. It's fine mm-hmm. <laughs> to, for people to believe what they want to believe. Um, but one of the problems that boys uh, have more so than girls is they're not as empathically accurate as girls are. You know, boys mm-hmm. aren't taught to... Uh, recognize their feelings, to express their feelings, uh, to recognize feelings in others and talk about others' feelings. They're just not as good at, at that coming out of childhood uh, compared to girls. And so this increased influence of the familial environment on girls might be the fact that they're just more relationally attuned. And right. that doesn't mean that the familial environment will make them more awkward necessarily. Uh, it could mean that the familial environment makes them less awkward because they're paying more attention uh, to what their parents are saying about social interactions or, you know, observing their parents and how they do things and using that modeling to correct their social behavior. Is there, does your research or the literature um, suggest that there is a greater, a greater impact or negative impact for um, males versus females about being socially awkward? It's how, how they're received by others? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of my female friends love to hear this finding, <laughs> which is that <laughs> men are about twice as awkward as women. <laughs> so it's okay. three yeah. times the prevalence yeah. rate. Um, right. like, yeah, you didn't really need social science to tell us that. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, it's pretty uh, obvious. Yeah, right, right. But um, yeah, but there are actually studies that show not only at the behavioral level or the emotional level that boys tend to be more awkward than girls are, but you also see some biological evidence in brain imaging research that boys show a, more of a propensity towards uh, awkward neural patterns that lead to awkward behaviors or difficulty with social skills. You know, and I know that um, in your book, you talk about how people who are considered, quote, gifted tend to be um, more likely to be socially awkward. And it's making me think of a lot of the work um, that I do and that we do at the center. Um, we see a lot of uh, individuals who are considered gifted. And I find that there, this is this nature nurture thing that sometimes you get parents who would self-proclaimed awkward, who have kids that are awkward and there isn't a lot of stress. There, there, there might not be a lot of stress around that because this is kind of just, that's the way we are. 
However, sometimes that parent who had a lot of difficulty growing up and doesn't want their child to experience that the same way. And then conversely, you might have one parent who was, I believe you said, socially fluent, you know, like has good social skills, has always had good social skills. Mm -hmm. And then they have this socially awkward child that just doesn't resonate for them. And they're, they're really worried. So I imagine you see all of these different combinations out there. You're exactly right about all those different descriptions. And that's been one of the really interesting things since the book came out a few months ago is hearing from parents who have a really strong reaction to some of these messages. And they're saying, ah, it's it's great to hear you describe my son or daughter and to Mm -hmm. know that it's, it's okay, you know, and things are going to be all right, but that there's steps that we can take to help them adjust socially and help them find that sense of belonging that's so important to any child or adolescent or adult for that matter. Uh, but yeah, you, you see, you know, if it's heritable, then it's pretty likely that one of the parents is awkward. Once in a great mm-hmm. while, you see it skip a generation um, where n- neither parent is awkward. That was my case. Uh, both of my parents were very socially fluent. And then <laughs> I came along and was uh, certainly far more awkward than they were. Um, and you know, I think the thing that underlies how parents deal with this successfully is twofold. One, you know, they're, they're patient about it and they're not overreactive. It's so easy to get panicked about an awkward child not quite fitting in. But one of the worst things to do with an awkward child is to up the emotional intensity of a situation that's already difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, their brains are kind of ill-equipped to handle intense emotion compared to non-awkward kids. And so if you push them into that, uh, if you accelerate that emotion for them, amplify it, they're likely to shut down or, or react in a way that's, that's less than optimal. Just using even a calm tone of voice when a kid mm-hmm. is struggling socially or doing something that's, that's pretty socially awkward, uh, that can have a huge effect. And, you know, most awkward kids deep down they want to learn the skills like they want to learn how to fit in and how not to stress out about some of these routine social interactions. So, yeah, I think being, being calm, you know, avoiding being overreactive. The second thing is, is that parents who successfully, um, you know, raise an awkward child is that they get more specific about things that everyone else would take for granted. And so I give this example in in the book of the Wendy's parking lot. And so when we would go to Wendy's to get a hamburger, they'd park the car. My parents would turn around to the back seat and they'd say, it's time to mentally prepare. (laughs) And I knew exactly (laughs) what this meant. And this would be a kind of Socratic dialogue where they would say, so where are we at and why are we here? We're at Wendy's, we're here to eat. And then they might say something like, so what's the first thing you need to look for when you walk inside the door. And what they wanted for me to say was, I need to see whether there's a line or not. And if there is a line to go to the back of it, just because sometimes (laughs) I was so airheaded, you know, I would not, I wouldn't, I was facing a different direction. Right. And so I just wouldn't see the line. I wasn't trying to, you know, cheat anybody or get in front. Uh, I, I just didn't see it sometimes. And so they would have to go through these really specific things. Like, yeah, figure out what you want to order, get your money ready. Uh, don't turn around really quickly and hit someone with your tray, <laughs> you know, and this would go on until I was you know, 12, 13 years old, which is way mm-hmm. past the point 
parents would do that with a kid, right? And they had to do it dozens and dozens of times. But eventually I learned these social scripts that came naturally to other kids. And and now it's the case. I don't have to think twice about these things. Thank goodness. (laughs) But uh, it took a lot of persistence on their part and a lot of specificity. You know, it's really important what you're saying. So first of all, the... um the patience and you, how you even you know link that to brain development because we know from the brain-based work of Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson and such that you know when we're when our kids are upset when kids are upset and then you add um, intensity and emotion and arousal the brain just yeah. can't handle it. It particularly can't, not only is there more of a freak out, but you can't even, you can't teach. They're not in a receptive way. So it is so key for us to be calm in situations where we are feeling frustrated or embarrassed or whatever with our kids. And the other thing that I think is just key that what you're saying, and I find in, in my work, is that how we have to break things down and help with the scripts to teach. That's what you're talking about, to teach. Mm -hmm. And what we forget, especially with kids that are on, um, you know, average, above average, or more intelligence, we just make this assumption that if you are, you know, in advanced math, or you can read at these, all these books, and then you know, that when you go into um, a restaurant, you look to stand at the back of the line instead of going right up front. And, and Mm -hmm. that is, I think, a, uh, we miss that. Right, we miss that when we make these assumptions that um, are not uh, not reality based, based on our kids' behavior. You know, Dr. Dan, that's that's so true. Uh, I, I think there's this uh, misinformation in society that ability is uniform, right? So if you're good in one thing, you're good at everything else too, uh, right. and that's just simply not the case, especially with gifted kids, as you know. The more gifted they get, the more likely it is that they have uneven abilities such that they're excellent in some areas and even sometimes below average in in other areas. And this is true with with the social skills and the intellectual ability, especially when it comes to things like math and science or areas that are very method-based or systematically based. Uh, Kids gifted in those areas are much more likely to have social skill problems or problems with emotional intelligence. And that's okay, uh, but as long as parents are you know, calm and persistent and willing to be specific, then those kids will turn out just fine. Mm-hmm. And so what's the, what would you say is the correlation or relationship between being awkward and then moving into anxiety and social anxiety? Yeah, uh, that was an interesting distinction to think about. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. kind of think about the difference between those two things. You know, social anxiety, as a one of the core components of that, is unreasonable worry about a pending social interaction. And I think for awkward kids, sometimes it, the worry is actually not unreasonable. <laughs> you know, when I was mm-hmm. a, a kid, it was actually much more likely that I would. Um, mishandle a social situation compared to my peers. And so as long as that anxiety stayed in a range that was manageable, it was actually a positive thing for me because that motivated me to think more about what to look for in a social interaction in advance, made me think uh, about being more mindful once I was in the interaction about doing things like listening, uh, not speaking over people, uh, being sure to be well-mannered and show interest so I, I think it could have been, it can be a positive thing. Obviously, if it tips into something where 
the child won't leave the house or um, become so overwhelmed in the moment they can't interact in a calm fashion. You know, obviously, that's not good. But uh, right. although social anxiety and awkwardness are correlated, uh, they're not perfectly overlapping. No, and it's making me think about all the clients that I've worked with in situation with my own kids where you'd almost want them to be a little anxious because sometimes they're so socially um, – well, they're awkward. They're turning the other way or naivete or clueless that they're actually – not even picking up on enough information to even be anxious about the situation, right? We get that into the oh, spectrum yeah. too, I imagine. Yeah. For sure. Especially when we tell them it's okay, <laughs> which has now made it even worse, right? So, right. you know, I'm a big fan of uh, calmly delivering, you know, objective advice. Obviously, you got to pick your battles as a parent. But, um, yeah, if the, if the kid does something that's awkward and is going to continue to rub people the wrong way going forward, I am so grateful uh, that my parents would say, hey, and this is the way they would say it. This might be helpful for some of your listeners. But the way they would say it is, hey, Ty, when when you um, don't say goodbye <laughs> to people when you leave a discussion, it makes them feel like you didn't enjoy talking to them. And so they'd always phrase it as when you do A, it makes people feel B. And that was a message that really resonated with me because I wanted to do right by other people. I wanted to be a good citizen uh, or a good friend. And so that was a really good motivator. That's a really good example. Um, I know uh, I've seen a lot, too, breaking it down to some of these kids, something as simple as, do you know when you don't say hi back, they think you don't like them? And these kids would be like, Mm. what? Really? (laughs) Wow, I like them. And it's like, so you just connect A to B. It can make the world a difference for someone. (laughs) It certainly can. It certainly can. And that's a great example there of the awkward kid's tendency to assume that their mental state of mind, their mindset is shared. You know, they they Mm -hmm. don't always understand that there has to be this communication, this actually spoken word to communicate those things that are in their head. So let's move to why being socially awkward is awesome. So because we're all about strength-based, right? Like there is awesome yeah. stuff here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one, one good example of this was uh, I had this friend and they're having difficulty with their nine-year-old uh, who was very, very strong-willed and, and, and very gifted too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I said, look, that, that stubbornness that you see that's driving you crazy right now, and I'm not minimizing how crazy that's probably driving you, um, that stubbornness is going to turn into determination in the right context. And some of these unique ways that the awkward kids see the world, these unusual um, understandings they have or these unusual curiosities, uh, that can turn into creative energy later on. And so all these mm-hmm. things that trip them up when they're younger – if they channel those into the right context as they become adolescents and adults, all of a sudden those things become great strengths. And when they combine together, they can produce really extraordinary outcomes. If you go through the history of people who have achieved some pretty special things, you oftentimes find that there was this social discomfort, that there was this obsessive interest in something that they love so much, so much more than anybody else, that they decided to persist and to dig deeper than anybody else was willing to do. And I, I think, you know, across the board, not all awkward kids are gifted, not all gifted kids are awkward. 
Right. But I think the thing about awkward kids that's uniformly awesome is that they really do tend to love whatever they're interested in. Then they have this passion and this exuberance for those things that is just great to see. I I loved what Gino Ariyama, the women's basketball coach at UConn, said in a press conference about a year ago. You know, they asked him, why do you have the most successful program in the history of women's basketball? And, And he said, the key to that is that we recruit enthusiastic kids. He said, mm-hmm. the cultural pressure is to be cool, right? To be aloof, to be disengaged. The thing you got to love about awkward kids <laughs> and their, and their nerdiness is that they're just unafraid. They're unapologetic yep. about being really passionate about the things that they love. They're all in, all in. They are, they, they are. They, yeah. got to, you know, they'll learn some ways to, to temper that in certain situations or to introduce people to their passion <laughs> in a graded kind mm-hmm. of way uh, so it doesn't overwhelm other people. But, yeah, I think that's the real – one of the real dangers is accidentally squelching their unique interests or squelching the enthusiasm that they have in the rush to get them to fit in. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, your words of wisdom about patience and uh, being patient with our kids in situations, being patient with their development, because as you point out, you know, what that looks like at age five and age 10 and age 15, age 20, it changes over time. And uh, there's a lot of pressure on parents these days to produce these successful all around mainstreamers. And, uh we have to accept our kids where they are and help them grow and uh, help them find their way because that's, that's that awesome stuff that they possess. That's a, one of the most loving things I think a parent can do, right, is to, yep. is to get their kid in that way and say, hey, we, we realize <laughs> you're unique and you might have some particularly strong interests, not, not necessarily as broad of interests. We want to encourage you in some of these ways that we think will help you in life and they'll be necessary, but... The deal is then we'll support these um, these great passions that you have. And this is perfect timing and transition to our uh, parent footprint question, uh, the parent footprint moment question, and that's where, Dr. Ty, you tell us, tell us and our listeners about a time when you became more aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent or as a child of your parents where you gained an awareness about yourself for them. And that awareness had a positive impact on your life. Hmm. One of the things that was really impactful to me, this is going to be one of these things that sounds like a minor detail, maybe to, to outsiders, mm-hmm. but to me it was very meaningful. Uh, I had this odd interest as a child in baseball statistics and I just didn't, I just didn't like them. I was obsessed with them. And so I had actually memorized all of the earned run averages for every national league pitcher. I could tell you most of their win loss records updated each week. And I just had a good memory for these things. I liked creating equations and manipulating those numbers. And that's unusual for a 10 year old boy to be doing those things. And, you know, my parents, it probably made them nervous that I was doing that because they probably thought to themselves when he gets to junior high, this is exactly the kind of thing that can get you in social trouble. My dad had bought me this encyclopedia of statistics books (laughs) for my birthday, for my 10th birthday. 
And the Sporting News published these. It was a five-volume set, and it just had thousands and thousands of statistics in it. I loved it, and I would spend hours and hours poring over that. And the message that sent to me was that, hey, we support this thing that you're really passionate about. We support this thing that's an unusual interest of yours, and we're willing to nurture that. Um, even if that makes us a little bit nervous. <laughs> at yeah, times. yeah. But that was, you know, that that was a good deal for me because, uh, you know, it was important to have me know that my parents understood that quirk about me and would support it, and then that made me right. more receptive to the deal, which was that okay, I'll work harder at my social skills and be more attentive to those kinds of things in return. That's awesome. So, f- yeah, feeding your passion and it, not only feeding your passion, but that um, act is an acceptance of who you were and what you were about, as opposed to let's try to do a mainstream thing here and get away from this stuff, right? They, they f- fully accepted this thing about you. Exactly. You know, and it's just so meaningful at a time when, you know, 10 years old, there is that starting to be that pressure to fit some sort of specified norm, right? And it's for your, your parents who you think are not cool, <laughs> right. Or don't get things say, no, we get you, man. You know, and we know this is where you're at. And even though everybody else might not be moving the same direction, we're actually going to move with you and, and lean in to this thing that you're really interested in and this thing you really love. And that is awesome. That is awesome. Thank you all for uh, listening today to Dr. Ty educate us and impart his wisdom of, about why being socially awkward is awesome. Definitely check out his new book, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. And as all of you can hear, uh, this is a very uh, awesome and socially fluid guy who uh, has a history of being awkward and uh, is still awesome. Dr. Ty, where can people uh, learn more about you and find out what you're doing? Uh, Yeah, they could just go to awkwardbook.com and find out anything they want to know uh, over there. Dr. Ty, thanks for joining us today and providing inspiration to all of you parents out there who might be awkward, who might be raising some awkward kids. Remember, you're awesome. Thanks for listening today, everyone. Check us out at www.parentfootprint.com. Continue to try to be the person you want your child to become. Show them the way by your actions. Work on your awareness. And I'll leave you with that question I always do. What footprint do you want to leave?